Hello, I'm Simon Talbot. And I'm Wendy Dean. And this is Moral Matters. Hannah Cartman is an assistant professor in the School for Social Work at Smith College in Northampton. She teaches and does research on issues on mental health access and the advocacy and policy needs to improve it. Right. And we had a very interesting conversation with her really about the intersection of social work and a lot of social change and its impact on healthcare. And the thing that sort of struck me as we were doing this podcast, I think, was where it all stemmed from. And she basically said, I had a student who said to me, you're, you're asking, or students who said to her, you're asking me to do all these things in the healthcare field, but we can't achieve any of the things that you're asking us to do, which I just thought was, a, was you know, moral injury in a nutshell. Yeah. And, and more than that, you're putting us out into these spaces. You're telling us that you know they're not okay. What are you doing to help us change the system? Right. And right. that was... That, to me, was the powerful part of it, is we owe our students, our future generations of healthcare providers, healthcare leaders, um, to to do something in the moment, to change what's happening, not just waiting for change, for someone else to do it. It's sort of um, up to us to at least start that process. Yeah. Well, uh, today we're speaking with Dr. Hannah Kaufman. Um, Dr. Kaufman, can you give us a little uh, background about um, what you do and what brings you into the world of moral injury with us? Yeah, absolutely. So about, wow, it's 20-ish years now, I was working in the Boston area and I was running what was essentially an inpatient mental health program for adolescents. And we had a young woman who came onto our unit in an acute mental health crisis and that acute mental health crisis resolved. And Past that point, she was stuck on our unit for over a year because the system didn't have another place to put her. There was no community capacity to manage the complicated social and behavioral needs of this young woman. And I was really frustrated by that. Uh, so I got interested in mental health care policy and health care policy to try to figure out how could something like this happen and what could I do to to bend that experience a little bit. Uh, and at the time, there was a class action lawsuit in Massachusetts about this very issue. And ironically, it has a name, and the name is Stuck Kids, that it happens so often that that there's a name for it in administrative worlds. And so I got a PhD with the idea that I wanted to study stuck kids and be able to help the behavioral health care system make better decisions in concert with other systems that it works with so that kids weren't stuck in high levels of care for essentially needs they didn't have. Wow, that's that, that's fascinating, and it's it's interesting that you have such a specific moment in time where you where you recognize this problem. Um, can you tell us? Um, you're now at Smith. Correct. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what your day to day work involves and and um, what your what your routine work is? Yeah. So I um, am a faculty at the Smith School for Social Work. I 
at Smith, I teach social workers who are getting their master's degree and will be involved in the behavioral health care system. And I also have a research agenda, and my research agenda broadly focuses on marginalized families and their interactions with the healthcare and behavioral health care system. And so I look at families where there's a family member with serious mental illness, and then I also have a stream of research that looks at LGBTQ families and their experiences with health and behavioral health care services. And in addition to that, I do a fair amount of consulting in the field of mental health policy, sort of helping state-level leaders think about problems they're facing in the behavioral health care system and how we can fix them. So along those lines, what was, um, you know, I, I, what was your first um, experience with either recognizing the term moral injury or mm. seeing moral injury in, in practice in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually had a master's level student who wrote a paper on moral injury in the traditional sense of how it's used with veteran populations about eight or nine years. No, let's say that was probably more like six years ago. Uh, and what I recognized is that it had a lot of parallels with some of the things we were hearing from students. So our students were saying, you're asking me to go do field work, essentially what would be in the medical field a residency or a medical internship, and you're teaching us there are all these things wrong with these systems, but then you're asking us to go work in them. And you're telling us that the purpose of social work and behavioral health care is to meet the needs of clients, but we know these systems aren't meeting the needs of clients. How can you put us in that position? And to me, it's a perfect example of moral injury. We're working in systems that we know aren't doing what they're designed to do, yet we don't have great alternatives. Um, it's perfect. It's a perfect example. Right. And it's interesting that you even had a master's student who who was so in tune with it um, at that stage. Um, with with this going on, I mean, in your profession, this must be something very much like um, you know what I see day to day. You must see this all the time in your profession. Yeah, I think that there. You know, one of the parallels that I think is probably certainly there with the behavioral health care system and, and the physical health care system is that we talk a lot about costs in our country, that the cost of our health care system is so much higher than other countries. And often that gets blamed on overpayment in our system in some kind of way. Either we're paying providers too much or we're charging too much for the services and other countries aren't doing that. I think what that picture misses is that if you look at the data from other countries, their expenditures on social safety nets far outweigh the expenditures on social safety nets in our country. And so I think what we see in the United States to some extent is that the social determinants of health and disease are the cost of those determinants are falling in the health and behavioral health care system because they're not being attended to in other systems. So we see the effects of poverty in the health care system. We see the effects of food insecurity in the health and behavioral health care system. We uh, certainly in the behavioral health care system see the effects of community violence and kids and families growing up in community violence. And because as a country we haven't struggled with those other issues, you know, we're seeing the impact of those issues in our systems. Absolutely. This is, this is um, 
such a, this so resonates with me. Um, one of our other guests, Elena Perea, on an earlier episode, mentioned one of her frustrations that when, when people come in for treatment, often it's difficult to access the treatment that they need, or they can only access a portion of the treatment. And, they, and so we partially treat them over and over again, which mm-hmm. ends up being even more expensive than treating them completely the first time. Right. And I think, you know, certainly we see that in the substance abuse treatment system where we have detox programs that are anywhere from, you know, a couple of days to 30 days. And the recidivism rate to those programs is extraordinarily high. That's probably the most concrete example uh, that gets referenced. But I also think that we see that in behavioral health care all the time, uh, the same clients showing up either in the medical emergency room because there's a behavioral health crisis, which then is also driving up the costs of the physical healthcare system. And the emergency room doctors are certainly not there for that population specifically. Um, So we see those patients showing up in the ER over and over and over again. Uh, Or we see folks trying to get access to mental health services that either are inadequate to serve them, and therefore they're going back to those more acute systems like the hospital again and again, or um, there's just lack of availability. So, you know, I live in one of the places in the country that has a very high concentration of therapists, and right now it's very hard to get an appointment if you have good private insurance or can pay out of pocket, never mind if you have Medicaid or uninsured. And, And I think Dr. Dean, there's another issue there that I think um, doesn't get talked about quite as much in medical settings, which is that often the treatments that we have are inadequate or they're designed for populations that aren't the populations we're seeing. So, for example, yeah, so and so, for example, most of I work with kids and families and most of the evidence based practices are tested on people with a single morbidity, depression, anxiety, not depression and anxiety and, and PTSD. Right. And, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Correct. So, so then there's the question of even if our clients have access to what we can provide them, is what we're providing them effective? Right. So the other really interesting thing in your background is that you wrote a paper back in 2010 about finances in in a crisis, mental health expenditures in a crisis. Yeah. And as you're, you know, as I, as I was going through your background, I thought, oh, that's, that's really relevant right now. Are, are any of us paying attention to that? Scholarship? Yeah. So, right. Thank you. I, it's great to know that papers you've written get read. Um, I, you know, sometimes as an academic, you wonder how useful they are or if it's just kind of going out into the ether. But uh, we were curious that, you know, in, in that paper we looked at in the 08 recession, what did states and countries do in response to the recession with regard to mental health care? And um, we found a combination of people cutting programs substantially and in a few places actually expanding programs. And I think we're in a similar moment. Everyone is very focused, obviously, on on the pandemic. But the other thing that's happening right now is a really substantial economic crisis. Uh, at the time where we know behavioral health care needs are uh, 
going the opposite direction of state revenues. So how do states and systems respond? And unfortunately, you know, our Medicaid system is really designed to be able to be most responsive or to have the most money when the economy is doing well. So if states are faced with budget crises because the economy is not doing well, then uh, they have less resources. Yeah, so I think I think what you were what you were arguing for in that was for for states or for uh, organizations to find a way to invest in mental health care in the midst of a crisis that it actually pays off in the end. Yeah, I think that's certainly true because you know one thing I think is problematic about much of what we do in the United States is that it's very reactive, right? So we're very good at treating acute illness. We're not good at preventing it. And the same is true when we think about mental health care. So, you know, in my own life, I have a a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and I'm very struck by the impact that the COVID pandemic is having on young people. And we've closed schools in many communities, including in my community. And while that absolutely makes sense from a public health perspective, it also leaves an extraordinary number of children without any kind of social interaction beyond their home. And I know for myself, as as well as lots of other working parents, you know, we're all now trying to work from home and school our children from home. And in many cases, you add financial or food insecurity on top of that, and there's just not much to help a child navigate a really complicated situation right now. And so I think a lot about what should we be investing in right now in the moment in the middle of this crisis to prevent the mental health crisis that I think we will see with children in the future. And and by all accounts are starting to see, I think we've seen a lot of media attention to the mental health impacts on kids and families in the recent weeks. So, Hannah, that, that was fascinating because you just asked the exact question of yourself that I was about to ask you, which is, what should we be doing? As an expert in this area, what should we be doing differently right now? I mean, we're, we're headed towards, hopefully, the end of a crisis, um, and we've got more crises on the way probably as a result of it. But sure. in your opinion, what should we be doing right now? I think, yeah, it's a great question. Because I'm so interested in social determinants of health, I always think about what are the social determinants that affect behavioral health. So how do we make sure that families have the financial resources or physical resources for childcare right now so that you don't have a parent whose attention is split between a work monitor on one side of their desk and a child's homeschool monitor on the other side of the desk? You know, certainly watching my my own child at home, I've been thinking about how do we provide children with meaningful social interaction. So even for those of us adults who are working from home, even this conversation right now, I'm getting to talk to three colleagues who are really smart and intellectually stimulating and very connected and interested in what I'm saying. And I watch my seven-year-old who's in a classroom with 25 other kids on Zoom where the boxes of each person are less than an inch wide and her hand is in the air for an hour waiting to be called on. And I, I think about meaningful social interaction that we know supports resiliency in kids. How do, how do we provide those opportunities? Um, and let alone getting into education or academic achievement. 
this may not be a fair question because I think it's <laughs> because I think it's not it's not entirely in your line of work or in in the scholarship that you do. But you know the other the other big elephant in the room in our population and in our, in our with our listeners is that there's there's a second epidemic accompanying COVID, which is the mental health crisis in clinicians. Right. And I wonder if there's anything different that you would think about for that population. Mm. You know, I, I think we have a workforce crisis in behavioral health care that extends beyond just the moment that we're in right now. You know, you have this perverse system in the behavioral health care system where the most complicated clients that we see often show up in community mental health settings. And the clinicians who are staffing community mental health settings are usually the clinicians who are right out of school and in the first two years of their career. And then we lose those clinicians to private practices because that's the only way they can make a sustainable income. So the worried well, which are the people who you know often access private practice clinicians, are the ones who are being seen by our most skilled workforce, whereas the folks who have the most acute complicated cases are being seen in community mental health. So I think um, you have to invest more in community mental health uh, so that our workforce that's in that environment and our training ground um, a, can make a living, but B, has the resources in terms of training and support and supervision that makes their job doable. Um, and I think beyond that, you know, one of your other, uh, I can't remember her name, but I was listening to the podcast this morning, the emergency room physician in New York City that mm, you had Jane on. Kim. Yeah, was talking about um, yoga and mindfulness and all these self-care things that we throw at clinicians. And the problem with that is it holds the individual responsible for system-level failures. And I think we have to stop holding the individual responsible. And I think we have to look at what are the systems that are failing our providers and what do these systems need to do to make their jobs doable instead of saying, go do yoga to cope with your undoable job. Right. Yeah. This is, uh, you are speaking our language. So thank you. <laughs> um, now, on top of that, one of the things you mentioned is, is, is some of the most highly skilled people um, mm. exiting community practice and going into private practice. And of course, there's a lot of reasons for that. And one of them is that they don't get paid particularly well right. and what they were doing. But um, one of the other things that, we certainly see as people leaving community practice because it's such an untenable job for them. Totally. And they, after five years or whatever, say to themselves, there's got to be some alternative and private practice is sort of the obvious alternative. How do we, other than paying people more, there's, there's obviously more to it than that. Yeah. How, do we, how do we make these jobs sustainable? How do we tell those experts that we value you, we need you to stay in these roles? Yeah, you know, I think, so beyond payment to the, individual, I think it's also about the rates that the systems are paid, because these individuals are often working in agencies that are severely under-resourced. Um, and I think we saw that really excruciatingly clearly at the beginning of COVID, because many of the agencies didn't even have computers for their staff to do telehealth from. Right. So they, they didn't even have the equipment to, to start to begin to think about how to deal with COVID, let alone deal with COVID. Um, so I think it's not just about paying the individuals more, but putting enough money in the rates in those systems that those agencies can have supervisors who've got tenure in the field and can provide good supervision. I think 
all of the clinicians I work with, all they want to do is do a good job. And so they need the tools to do a good job. They need to see a reasonable number of pay, of clients in a day. They need to have time between those clients to think about the work that they're doing. They need to have colleagues who they can engage with and supervisors that they can engage with to talk about the work. Um, and also, I you know, I think one thing that we don't talk about enough is um and, and if you look at the tech industry, the tech industry's done a great job of giving their employees space to be innovative. So, you know, many of us have great ideas about how our systems could do a better job at doing what they're supposed to be doing, but we don't have the support or the infrastructure to chase that improvement. And I'd be really, I would love to see um, the kind of innovation grants and innovation support in behavioral health we've seen in other fields to to be able to say to those frontline clinicians, you're the ones doing the job. What would you create to make this job more doable, to make your work more effective? That's a great idea. The other, the other thing that um, you've done a lot of that I think our, our audience would love to hear about is advocating for these changes in mm. places, in places that are outside of just your your kind of office or your your local place of business. So, you know, bigger than bigger than your the the healthcare system that you work in, how do you start to advocate to make change? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple things. You know, um my students ask me this question all the time. And often I think we think about, or at least my students think about this binary idea of either we burn it all down and we start over or we get involved in the system and then we're a part of it in a way that just makes us a cog in a wheel and that there's no sort of happy middle ground. And I think my approach has been to stay in those systems and to purposely try to put myself in places in those systems where I can bend things just a little bit. Um, because I do actually think when we talk about large scale systems like the behavioral healthcare system or the medical system, small changes make a really big difference. So if we have a requirement that's a requirement we all think is terrible and makes our workforce's life more challenging, is there something we can embed in that requirement that actually makes the care better? for instance, and I've done some work with that here in this state. Um, if um, there is a moment of crisis, can we use that crisis or think about the opportunities that crisis provides to change our systems in particular ways? But I don't know if that's what you, you know, what you were really getting at. But the other thing I tell my students is that advocacy happens also one-on-one. -on -one. And he'll kill me for telling this story, but my dad is a physician and never really believed in universal health care. Um, and, you know, so I, I got a doctorate and studied a lot of health policy and talked to him a lot about universal health care. And those conversations happened at the dinner table. And eventually he went to a country that had universal health care, saw it firsthand and changed his mind. Um, and I like to think that all of those conversations I had with him in advance allowed that to happen. Um, but I think sometimes people get overwhelmed when they think about advocacy because they think, oh, I have to be a politician or I have to run for office. And sometimes it's about a conversation 
at a barbecue with someone who you didn't know was a state Medicaid director who has a new idea because you talked to them or talking to your family members over the dinner table or listening to what your clients or patients have to tell you about the system and then using your own voice in your system to bring that forward. Um, so those are you know, really small examples. I, I think the other thing that I've done is build relationships. So I've built relationships very deliberately uh, with people I believe in, in public sector mental health and services uh, at the state and in other states. And I've been very grateful that those public servants have let me work beside them on projects they felt were important. So I think sometimes it's recognizing that uh, people who are in these systems, by and large, want to do the right thing uh, and forming relationships with those folks and, and helping them do that. Right. I don't know if that answers your question at all. Yeah, so I think I, I think that's, um, yeah, the whole thing did. And what resonates with me about that is is talking to people who are in those positions where where they have the ability to make decisions and to drive policy or change policy, mm -hmm. but they don't always have the background that they need. Right. And they're hungry for information to help them make the right decision. And so right. being in a position to feed that information is, is really powerful. Yeah. And I think having these conversations with all of you and uh, also being able to talk cross systems and in inter interdisciplinary ways. So, you know, what can we learn from sociologists? What can behavioral health clinicians learn from somebody who works in an emergency room and vice versa? You know, how do we get out of our silos and really start to talk to each other? Because I think often we find that the problems we're facing are the same in multiple systems. And I think we can take ideas from each other and move them forward. Absolutely. Uh, I'm curious, uh, going forwards, um, you know, one of your roles is obviously training people and teaching people and mm. having young people come up through this. How do we prevent people becoming, um, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen to people, right? Becoming cynical, mm. <laughs> becoming helpless, mm -hmm. uh, leaving. Um, how do we help people who are coming through the ranks to be able to participate in systems change? Yeah, I mean, oh, that's a tough question. <laughs> I I think the, the first part is not losing them before they start. Um, one of the things I love about where I teach and have the opportunity to teach is that we really push our students to engage in critical thinking. And the upside of that is that we need critical thinkers in our systems. The downside of that is if you look at our system critically, it's pretty hard to want to work in it. Um, <laughs> you know, right. and yeah, and, and I think we, you know, I see our students often say, how do I do this? Or I can't believe you're expecting me to do this or move me and put me somewhere that you talked about working in class. And sometimes I'm in a position to say to the students, no, this is, this is where your work, this is what it is. There isn't an ideal field placement. There isn't an ideal uh, setting because the reality is that this work is really hard and the systems are still very broken. And so how do we help people hold the dialectic of working in a system while trying to change it and recognizing that, at least in my mind, the children and families that 
I have had the opportunity to work with, I do believe that I did my best to give them something they needed in, in that time of needing it. And if I wasn't there, there might have been somebody who didn't have that same commitment that I did or, you know, no access to services at all. So how do I keep doing that work at the same time as I can see everything around me that doesn't work and engage in that. So what I love about social work, honestly, is that it's good at uh, that individual level and system level thinking at the same time, which is why it's been my disciplinary home versus I think other fields tend to be more focused on the individual or more focused on the system. So I think we have to help people think systemically and at the individual and relational level at the same time and to consider the interaction between those things. How do I use my relationships to help move systems? How do I push systems to help improve relationships um, and, and human experience? Uh, I think the other things that our students need is a willingness from us to be authentic and honest. Um, and instead of saying, you know, yeah, you know, you're going to go out there and save the world. Um, to be able to say, you're going to go out there and, and work in a really difficult field and do the best that you can do every day. And sometimes that's not going to be enough. And sometimes the systems that you're working in are going to make that job harder. And sometimes, you know, one of the things I think is really difficult uh, for folks, especially doing case management, is to sit with clients in a medical appointment or in a behavioral health appointment and see what looks like them being harmed in some way. You know, a, a provider not listening to their client or a provider projecting a particular stereotype onto the client because of uh, their skin color or the type of insurance they have. And how do we help prepare our students for those realities? And also, know that that's the experience of their clients every day. And they're not going to fix it by yelling at the provider in that moment, right? That these are system level problems and that we have to engage the systems in order to move them. I don't know if that helps at all. Oh, it, it absolutely helps. And it, it, it makes me think we need more social workers in our system when I hear, <laughs> when I hear you speaking about this. So thank thank you. you. Right. I mean, I think that's, I, I think it's, it can't be overstated that, if you only work on the individual level, nothing will change. You'll be subject to what the system dictates is, is the right thing for the system. Right. Or worse, you become a part of that system and yeah. keeping people's voices from being heard within it. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, Hannah, I think we could maybe talk to you for hours on end. I would enjoy that. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll have to find time another you know, in the future, not too long. Yeah, I really, you know, I I said, as I was signing on, I had listened to a series of these podcasts today. And, you know, it's, what's so great is to hear the different lenses from parts of the system, to talk to an administrator, to talk to a provider, to talk to somebody who does policy, and to realize ultimately we, you know, we're sharing the same goals, but we need everybody's lens. And I love that this podcast is getting all of those lenses and, and making them approachable to people. Yeah. Well, thanks for being part of that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks for having me. I think, um, you know, one of the things that comes up when we speak to almost anybody who's is sort of in the thick of it in the U.S. is 
how there are some of these things that are somewhat, maybe not totally unique, but worse in the United States, um, particularly some of these ideas about how much we spend on uh, treatment-style healthcare rather than the safety net healthcare, or uh, or even more so, even than the preventive healthcare. And I think you know one of the things that was a stark uh, point that uh, that Hannah made is the effects of poverty and food insecurity and community violence um, as being something that we're we're, we're basically losing uh, good healthcare because of those things and having to mop up the um, results of that later on. Yeah, exactly. And what would it look like if all of those components could work together Mm -hmm. to uh, improve prevention or to improve to improve the our social network so that fewer people ended up needing health care. You know, this is, um, as I explain it to some people, it's almost like a money tree when you spend money on those things. It's like fertilizing the tree that then provides more money for your system. And it does explain in many ways and quite tangibly why it is so expensive for us to provide health care in the United States and why so many countries would be glad to take the money that we spend or the G- the percentage of GDP that we spend and could probably achieve some uh, some exceptional goals within their systems. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of what Don Berwick talked about in episode three. Is He talked about exactly the same thing. If healthcare is a sixth of the U.S. economy, what obligations does it have to look at some of these other issues and, and start co-producing solutions. Mm-hmm. Hannah spoke about sort of the epitome of moral injury as well when she was talking about the errors of holding the individual responsible for those systems level failures. And I sort of pointedly asked her, what do we do to improve the, the system? And, you know, this is a question that we've asked a lot of people and a lot of people have come up with a lot of answers, but I did like the way she put it fairly succinctly that, yeah, you've got to pay people more to do some of the jobs that are hard to do, but it's not all about just paying people more to do things that are difficult. Yeah. It's also about providing an environment and resources and all the things that are necessary for people to do their job well and to feel like they're achieving something. And again, I, I just felt that um, Hannah was speaking our language perfectly. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah, appreciation goes such a long way. It's not a substitute for paying people commensurate with their worth, but it's also necessary to acknowledge that this is a difficult job. And, oh, by the way, we're going to work with you to find ways to make it better. As always, thank you for joining us for Moral Matters. And if you want to continue the conversation, we're on Facebook at Moral Injury of Healthcare. Instagram at Moral Injury. Twitter at WDMD and Simon Talbot MD and at Fix Moral Injury. Next time, we're going to be speaking with Jim Beckner. Jim Beckner is the executive director at the Richmond Academy of Medicine in Richmond, Virginia. And we had a very interesting conversation with him about how, as an executive, He has been able to change the conversation with their physician members and support their physician members in some of the more difficult things that are going on right now. Yeah, that was a great conversation and we're looking forward to sharing it with you. 
We are so pleased that you're joining us. We're pleased that you're uh, back each week reading and reviewing us and we're getting a lot of feedback. We, uh, we really love hearing your feedback so please continue to email us or uh, send us a message online. If you're listening to the podcast, please subscribe to the upcoming episode, rate us and review us and uh, keep the conversation going. Yeah, we're looking forward to it. Talk to you next time. Talk soon.